The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. After 20 years of anti-slavery work around the globe, IJM is hosting a momentous event called Liberate. This gathering will include all of IJM's staff and others who are passionate about ending slavery, individuals who are excited to to step up and hear the call and further the movement of ending slavery. If you would like to learn more and get tickets, go to liberategathering.org. And for a limited time, you can use the promo code THENEWACTIVIST to get $20 off your ticket. That website again is liberategathering.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Well, this is The New Activist, a weekly show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and today we get to hear from and learn from Jessica Honiger. She is the co-CEO and founder of Noonday Collection. I'm guessing you've heard of Noonday Collection, but in case you haven't, they are just a massive a fashion brand that sells an inspired collection of jewelry and accessories made by artisans across the globe, and they create opportunities for women to join them in making an impact. You've probably seen someone wearing Noonday, a lot of famous people wear Noonday, and they are uh, just really a win-win kind of business. I love Noonday, and they are really supportive of International Justice Mission, by the way. Today, we get to hear from Jessica and hear her story, and we really are going to kind of take it a beat at a time. We're going to start at the beginning. And I I can tell my bias sometimes in interviewing because I have young daughters and I'm always curious, like, okay, you know, how do you raise children to grow up, to be entrepreneurs, to be people that are going to leverage their life for the sake of other people? And so in Jessica's interview, we start at the very beginning. Here is the very start of her story, the conversation I got to have with Jessica Honiger. Let's start at the beginning. You are insanely accomplished. We know that kind of the punchline of uh, your story is that you are the founder and co-CEO of Noonday, which we will get to. You're an author, and we'll get to that. Speaker, podcaster, parent, wife. I mean, it's just like you have this really insane bio, but I am fascinated to know, like, start with little Jessica. What kind of, what kind of <laughs> I really am like, what makes a you is the question I keep asking myself, but that is terrible grammar. So what, how do you, what, where do you grow up? How does all start? Are you a precocious little kid? Or are you, are you really curious about the world? Do you have a lemonade stand? Tell me. Uh, oh my goodness, Eddie. I, I just give my parents so much credit because mm. I was a difficult little girl to raise. Um, you know, yeah. I've heard that expression about, um, you know, the, the bossiness on the playground. I mean, I was definitely the bossy girl on the playground, but of course I've learned that it wasn't bossy. I was just a leader. I mean, I was a leader at, um, a young age and, um, I love how we're changing that narrative that when girls are called bossy, that actually we can reframe that to leadership. Um, but I was definitely sort of the one, um, leading the crowd. And my granddad said in, when I was in the fourth grade, he told my mom, he said, she's either going to be, this is during the whole, like, don't do drugs, Nancy Reagan situation. (laughs) And he said, she's either going to be leading the crowd and selling drugs, or she's going to be not doing the drugs and telling everyone else they shouldn't do the drugs. So 
I did. I went into the direction of the no drugs. So that was a good thing. <laughs> I do love that his pivot point was a cultural reference about drugs. Like as if it's, if you're either going to be pro or against. That's the only way we're going to. Pro gonna- or against. So yeah. And then entrepreneurship was just something that was in my blood. And I I did lemonade stands. I did jewelry stands. At one point I picked flowers from my neighbor's yard and then I would go home and wrap a bow around them and go sell them back to the neighbor, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So I definitely had a very wild imagination and was industrious about with that imagination. And really I I did grow up um, with parents that really did encourage me to be whoever, you know, I was meant to be in the world. Did you ever get any of that um, that feedback growing up about, you know, that you were too bossy, that you should be uh, quieter, more submissive, a little bit more like in the cultural norm of what a girl is supposed to be? Yeah, I think that that message came more indirectly just because I have a stay at home mom and she just was a little bit more of a Southern debutante personality and she isn't a real take the bull by the horns. And that's just actually the nature of her personality that has also its beauty to it. And then my dad is like the precocious out there, like lit life of the party adventure, um, (laughs) entrepreneur guy. And yet I think little girls grow up thinking I'm supposed to be like my mom. And then growing up in the South with parents that had very traditional roles, I think I did internalize this message that I'm supposed to be a little bit more quiet, more demure, and my storyline will be to go to college, join a sorority, get married, and have children. And that was the narrative that was sort of laid out before me. And it it has been a lot of my uh, early adulthood was sort of um, realizing the storyline wasn't going to be that and that that was okay and that that was beautiful. Yeah, and for a lot of people, I mean, that's their their truth. They're very happy with that life that they've grown up and joined a sorority and gotten married and had children and that's just what they've wanted to do. But for you, that wasn't what was what was true. That wasn't who you – it sounds like that's not who you were wanting to be. Did Was there ever any tension in – I'm not trying to dig up something if it's not there, but was there ever a tension in breaking out of, of that, um, of that story? Yeah. You know, um, I mean, this is crazy, crazy to, to tell you, but my husband even now actually is a full-time dad right now. He, I'm, I'm fully, um, the breadwinner in the family for the last few months. And if you would have told me that eight years ago, I would have thought that that was, I might've even said that that was wrong. Hmm. You know, and I remember um, when I had my first huge month in sales with Noonday Collection and I texted my dad and I said, listen, this is how much we sold this month. And he said to me, he texted back and he said, congratulations. Don't forget about your kids. Yeah. And. I don't know. I don't know how I, how did you internalize that? Well, I was mad. I was mad, but of course now I'm, I'm growing and I'm learning to give a lot more grace and understand where people come from contextually. And that's, that's where he came from. And there wasn't really a universe where you could be an entrepreneur and a CEO and also be a caring, doting mother. And that was his narrative. And, you know, frankly, 
my narrative at the time was my dad's, you know, it yes. was like, yeah, I mean, am I screwing my kids up? And so I have had to go through a long process of owning my story and realizing that um, being a CEO and being a good mom and a good community member, that those are not mutually exclusive, that there is a world where, you know, you can show up and be fully yourself in all the different spheres of your life. And that, you know, quote unquote, being a good, good mom isn't like, you know, 50% at home, 50% at work. Like it's not a time quotient. It's not like this, this pie, right. Mm. Um, it really is more about presence and intentionality and showing up being fully there when you're there, um, no matter where you are. Gosh. And we're just on a totally different path than I expected already, but like that really is a Real cultural norm, isn't it? Because nobody's asking. I mean, I, I've never heard anyone asking a powerful male CEO, like, how do you balance like work and kids? Nobody's asking him that. But I bet that you have gotten that question at Q&As and events that you've done more than one time. I get it all the time. And um, I because also, really, yeah. yeah. No, I interrupted. Please. I'm sorry. Well, there's also like, what's it like being a female leader? And I'm like, well, I don't know. It's like being a male leader, you know? Um, but yeah, it, it, and I think that, that paradigm was true for me for sure. I, I do feel like the tide has turned so much. I started the company eight years ago. And of course, even part of me writing this book, uh, my book Imperfect Courage is turning that tide. And I don't want women to have to go through the angst and the guilt and um, everything that I went through for several years. I want to be able to pave a way of freedom and for people being able to step up and be world changers and moms at the same time. Man, so how have your parents now that you have experienced all of this success and you've just completely shattered whatever expectations they may have had of you in a, in a great way. Cause you've got this, you're just so successful. How now did they, how have they changed in their, in their view of, of you? I would say they have radically changed. I mean, they are such huge supporters of me. It was so funny. Last Friday, I received an endorsement for my book from Brene Brown and I was with my dad he has no idea who Brene Brown is. And I'm like, dad, <laughs> I'm like, dad, there's this author and researcher and woman who has been a huge inspiration to me. She's had a huge impact on me, dad. And she's really widely well-known. Yeah. And her name's Dr. Brene Brown. And, and he just started crying. He's like, I don't know who that is, but I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> that's a great answer. He does need to read Gifts of Imperfection, though, doesn't he? Well, she's been a huge influence on me. When I tell you that journey that I went on where I felt like these things were mutually exclusive and I felt a lot of shame around um, running a startup. And, you know, I, I adopted a kid. I had three kids under five. And, um, yeah, definitely the Gifts of Imperfection was probably the beginning of a domino effect of really owning my story. So I'm very grateful for her. Yeah, that is our official plug for Gifts of Imperfection. That is amazing. <laughs> like everybody listening to this, this is kind of required listening for, required reading for this show. Um, so as you grew up, and we're going to get out of the zero to 18 narrative really soon. This is my last question on that. But I'm just curious, like as you grew up, what kind of attributes were encouraged in you that gave you such 
such just a, a courage and ability to do what a lot of your peers were not doing? Well, you know, it's interesting because on one hand, I say that my parents had these very, very narrow views for women, but I really think it's because um, that's the lives that they were living. And I plastered what I should eventually do onto to that path. I would say the narrative at home was still very much like go and do what you're meant to do. And when I was 15, my parents let me go to Africa. And this is long before the age of, you know, social impact was even a word. This is before microfinance loan was a word. I mean, this is back in the day when people were not necessarily going and trying to change the world. Like I feel like so many um, high schoolers are now. And I wasn't even with youth. It was a bunch of adults. And I just give them a lot of credit for letting me literally pick up and and go to Africa later in when I was 18, I moved to inner city, Washington, DC for a summer and worked in a home for women recovering from drug addiction. And again, I mean, now that I'm a parent and you let your kids do these things where they are in harm's way. Um, and, and my parents really just let me fly and let me soar and let me pursue these things. And, um, you know, I, I had a fire and they truly did let it burn. Hmm. Do you, do you remember when you were growing up, like, the, the early sparks of, or if there were even early sparks of like activism, caring about the world outside of yourself and you, because there's, there's like a, a parallel path that seems to be happening with you. It's this entrepreneur who is going to do something like it's burning. And there's also this, uh, you know, this kid that's 15 years old and goes to Africa. Like there's this, these kind of, both of these paths are happening. You remember was 15 years old the first time that you sort of saw the world outside yourself and realized you wanted to help or was there something before that? Yeah, I would say that it was in the eighth grade when I went with my church at the time to visit inner city, Washington, DC. And we were partnering with a church that was founded by a guy named Gordon Crosby and Gordon had marched in Selma and he has since passed away, passed away at about 92, but Mm. he really was one of the first people to create a church um, that was really based around radical racial diversity and radical sort of justice movement in Washington, D.C. And there have been many, many social movements that have started from um, that original church. I mean, I think it started in the 1960s. And I remember being on this trip in D.C. and being in a home with um, a woman who sang this incredible rendition of Amazing Grace with Mm -hmm. sweat beating from her brow and we were on the sixth floor floor of her building where she was in um housing that was supporting women coming out of addiction and i remember her just belting this song out and thinking gosh i know that song i used to attend church with my grandma and knew knew amazing grace well at her baptist church but i'd never heard it sung by a woman who'd really been through toils and snares and i looked out the window and had heard that this area was one of the largest open air drug markets in the country and yet i was 2 miles from the White House. And uh, that juxtaposition, that idea that some people had access to privilege and opportunity and other people didn't, 
absolutely struck me. And I would say that was um, my turning point of truly becoming an activist. So it happened young. And so I was fairly obnoxious um, all throughout high school. Like, (laughs) I was one of those people that was like, uh, I can't believe you were wearing a designer purse. Do you know what you could have done with that? Oh, you were that person. I was. I can't believe I was that person. Like, it's noble, but also it's like. So obnoxious. Like, come on. (laughs) That's right. So obnoxious. But you've got this in you, right? Like, you're seeing that there is a cause and effect to the life you lead and to other people's lives. Absolutely. And yeah, so I then after that is when I went to Africa for the first time on that trip, I mentioned where I was 15. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna go now take this sort of activism international. And then I go to Kenya. And that's where I really saw international poverty for the first time, which Mm. was obviously eye opening for me. And that's where I met a woman who was running this brightly colored fruit stand. And my Kenyan friend explained that she had received a microcredit loan and was able to have a thriving business now, which enabled her to get out of an abusive marriage. And I think that's where sort of all of these streams came together, this like yeah. entrepreneurship of, of from my father and just from the way I naturally was built um, meets sort of activism and injustice. Now, at the same time, this, there was no Tom's shoes back then, you know, there was no model for this, but as I, you know, kept living my life. And now as I look back, right, like it it sounds like, and it all came together. And then I started a social impact brand that's now changing the world for thousands of people. (laughs) Right, right. But it wasn't like that. It's more in looking and looking back, I can pull the strings together. And that's what I like to encourage young people now is I don't think God wastes anything. Like absolutely nothing in my life is wasted. I mean, I graduated from college. I went to work with Food for the Hungry International in Bolivia, where I served along along midwives with the Quechua people. And then I went to Guatemala and became a teacher. And then I came back to the States. I eventually worked at a jewelry store. And then I was flipping houses and started a real estate company. I mean, it all felt so random. What am I doing with my life? And now I can point back and say every single thing that I learned, every skill that I acquired is now holding an impact on what I do now as a CEO of a fair trade fashion brand. But it doesn't usually make sense at the time. Okay, well then, so that's really interesting because I think that a lot of people listening, and first of all, thanks for sharing all that because it's so fascinating to hear the very unconventional path that took you to you know, today. But I I think a lot of people that are listening are right in the middle of that. They're working an internship that has nothing to do with the degree that they got. They don't know if they want to go to grad school. And it's all like, there's this thing on the horizon. But right now, it all just seems hodgepodge. And it can be a stressful moment. I mean, you said that you don't always know what's happening in that that moment. But what would you tell yourself then to try to encourage yourself to just keep threading the needle of that that crazy set of experiences. I think it's it really is just that to keep threading the needle. Like through it all, I still even when I was working at a jewelry store, I was like, well, I'll go volunteer for Big Brothers Big Sisters. And even when I was doing real estate, it was like, okay, we're going to go and visit regularly this um home for um homeless people that were had mental issues. And so I think 
through it all, when you have, when you get woke, when you wake up (laughs) and you wake up to your power and you wake up to your privilege and you wake up to your, to your purpose, um, of course you think big, you know, and now with social media, we, we have so many ways to see examples of people that are doing it big, but your first step is the most important because you can't finish what you don't start. And all of those steps matter, no matter what they are, they don't have to be leaps or steps and maybe volunteering right now. Or if you're an accountant and you're helping a nonprofit on the side, or if you are interning and you're serving as a CASA volunteer too, um, I think all of those things eventually lead to a path. I think it is a commitment to using your power to create more power for other people um, is, is the commitment. And that's the overall thread that I can look back and I can see, even though it, most of the time of my life, it wasn't my full-time gig. But did you know when you were, I mean, pick one of the random jobs, you were doing real estate, <laughs> right? Did you know, you, well, you didn't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't know that noonday was coming. You just knew that something was brewing, right? So how do you keep the motivation to keep moving towards that? You know, I think that it is a worldview. I think that when you have a worldview that is that everyone is made in the image of God and that you are made with a voice and that your voice can contribute to impact and to change and to not despise the days of small, um, to not despise small beginnings. Um, I think that that is really really important. And I think that, um, the motivation comes from knowing that it all is leading to a a bigger narrative. And, you know, we, we aren't the ones who get to necessarily, you know, name the chapters of our lives. We can't, we can't usually name the chapters until they're, they're sort of over, you know, and they're like, Oh, that's what that chapter was. And I think that, you know, as you reflect upon your life and you start naming those chapters, then I think it can help you to sort of write your next path. Um, I'm curious for you, were there, uh, were there false starts and missteps? (laughs) Okay. I mean, you already heard that I was a raging (laughs) activist. Okay. So that's a wrong first step right there. So usually when you're in that phase of like, I'm saving the world, you're doing it pretty yeah. wrong. You're probably <laughs> yeah. causing a lot right. of damage. I mean, I just remember, yeah, going to Kenya for the first time. And then I went back again the following year and decided everybody needed books in English, you know, <laughs> even though. Which, which isn't bad, right? Books in English is fine, but. but Not if that's not the language that they're learning in. That's, you know? right. <laughs> um, that's right. Yeah. And I think they're there was this sense of not having a listening ear and definitely not approaching it from more of a needs-based assessment. I was really blessed that after college, I went to work with Food for the Hungry. And at the time, Steve Corbett, who went on to write When Helping Hurts, was running all of the trainings and so got to really be mentored by him. And I think that's really when I was given this worldview. And I think largely before that, I had seen poverty as a resource issue, as a material issue. And I hadn't really had this full worldview, this context to put it in that we're all image bearers made in the image of God. And, 
we're all created to, um, you know, everyone, even the poor are created to create more, you know, um, to use what they have to multiply themselves and their resources. And I think that's when I really realized how much I had gotten it wrong in the past. Mm. And that's when it seems like, uh, first of all, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> I appreciate you just say, sharing the junky stuff with us too, because that's what we're all doing, right? We're all in the yeah. middle of a series of missteps until we finally stumble into the thing we were And we looking still for. make missteps. I mean, that's, I'm telling you, true. like, yeah. I, and I hate that. Like, I, mm-hmm. I really want to be perfect. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think that that would save me from just all the pain in the world, but that's actually not true. I mean, we're all still making missteps. You know, I mean, I have a full team now of of 50 people in our Austin office and I just got 360 feedback, you know, that was giving me a lot of feedback of where I could be a a better leader and and acknowledge the humanity of the very people that I work with um, more. And it was painful because I'm like, I don't want to hurt other people and I want to be perfect. But the truth is we all hurt people. We all get hurt by people. We all make missteps. It's just a matter of, are we going to let that define us and keep us seated? Or are we going to embrace the messiness and know that, you know, love, love wins at the end of the day. So somewhere in your narrative, we're college, post-college, but you, you wrote that, uh, you, you wrote, um, I don't remember where I read it, but it was in your writing somewhere. It said it was during this time that I began to understand the power of entrepreneurship as a sustainable solution to poverty. And at first you read that sentence and it's like, yeah, that sounds right. But then it washes over and you realize like this is a, like a real solution to poverty. So how, how is that, how did you come to believe that to be true? And how have you seen that lived out? Yeah. You know, I remember in college going and hearing Ben and Jerry speak and they are the founders of the B Corp movement and Noonday is a B Corp. And I just remember they said, um, look to look at architecture over time. And they said, you know, if you think about it, it, it used to be um, the churches, you know, were the beautiful, the beautiful architecture that you would see and the people would spend, you know, decades building churches. And, you know, um, then it was a time of art, you know, and people would spend, you know, years, years, years creating beautiful art. And now what do you see? You see skyscrapers and that's like the, the dominant architectural feature in cities today. And business is the way to affect change. Yeah. And I just remember that really resonating with me and thinking, wow, business can be a positive force for good. And then as I went with Food for the Hungry, I remember walking through the Andes Mountains when I was working among the Quechua and there were these big latrines that had been built. And I remember opening the latrine, hoping that I could use one as I'm hiking for hours out and walking between communities and they were filled with like rocks and chickens and like all Mm -hmm. sorts of things that had nothing to do with a latrine right and i come to find out it had been a project where you know some outsiders had come in assessed that the community need was a latrine and the latrines had been built 
and the community had no desire or need for latrines. They they liked going to the bathroom the, the old school style for them. Right, right. And then I thought of I eventually moved to Guatemala, and um, my fiance at the time, who's now my husband, was living with a family that was extremely entrepreneurial, and they had um, extra a whole extra plot that they were growing corn and then they would had built an extra silo to store the corn so that they could sell it. And, um, and then even the fact that my husband was living with them, they had built a little room for him just so they could, you know, charge rent. And that was when I realized the people that were really emerging out of poverty had this spirit of entrepreneurship. And, um, I think that's when I, and there's just so much power in work and, you know, God initiated the world with, work and he is an architect and artist and entrepreneur. And I think there's so much value in, I mean, it's like what you were asking me about earlier that, you know, people are having angst because, you know, they're, does their job matter? And, you know, our work is how we spend our days and how you spend your days is how you spend your lives. And so if we can create opportunity for the poor to be able to spend their days doing what God created them to do, you know, that is what unleashes dignity and power and multiplication and transformation. Mm. So we continue to go not quite beat by beat, but this sort of fast flyover of your life. And I think that, um, what I would guess is one of the most significant moments of your life is 2010, you and your husband make the decision to adopt. Um, I, I would, and I would, I understand if you need to punt this question away, but I, I'm curious what, what prompted the decision to adopt a child and why Rwanda? You know, we had, been always open to adoption and growing our family through adoption. He has a lot of um, cousins that were adopted. And so it wasn't a foreign concept to us at all. I had had a really challenging second pregnancy and I was really open to never being pregnant again. And yet we knew we wanted to grow our family through adoption. So I think when it kind of came for this third time to think about, okay, we know we want a third child there are many ways we could go about doing that, you know? So it was more of like, well, we could, you know, do it the old fashioned way. We could foster, we could do all of these things. And as we began to pray about it and began to really research it, I um, had a friend at the time who was actually interviewing to be the director of international justice mission in Rwanda. And he had gotten wind that we were exploring adoption as an option to grow our family. And on that trip, he met a woman who was interested in facilitating adoptions for Americans. She had just adopted someone from a little boy from Rwanda and wanted to do that for, for others. So he emailed me and said, would you um, like to connect with her? And I said, yes, absolutely. I would love to hear more about the adoption process in Rwanda. And then I Googled Rwandan adoption blogs, which is how you discover <laughs> all things. You know, I went to Google and it's amazing. Googled Rwandan adoption blogs. And the first blog that came up, I clicked on it and it was a, a woman named Emily. And she said, I'd love to meet with you and um, walk you through our process because she just happened to live in Austin. Well, when it came time for me to meet her, I thought, I, let me make, you know, let me go check her out. Let me look at her picture and her bio. So as I clicked on her picture, I realized it was my junior year college roommate. No way. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that is that is weird. I mean, I cannot believe that. God, you just gotta love when God makes something clear. <laughs> I mean, I, how many times have I been like, God, could you give me a Rwandan adoption moment, please? You know. Wow. Um, but those don't come, you know, all the time. Yes. But this was seemed so apparent and truly, truly has been apparent. Actually, it's crazy because the the attorney, the Rwandan attorney who ended up working for us in order to process all of the paperwork. Um, actually, he ended up going uh, to become one of IJM's attorneys when IJM was in Rwanda. So just this beautiful interwoven story and God opened a lot of doors through through that entire process. Speaking of which, and I, of course, I'm just teeing you up intensely, but uh, it costs money to adopt. And uh, in the process of uh, of figuring out how to pay for adoption, and this led to another massive moment. If I can just tee you up so directly. Yes, thank <laughs> you, you for the tee up. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate know, it. I didn't know how to put that in a perfect podcasty question. So no, just talk about it. <laughs> let's talk about it. So, yeah. yeah. So during one of my more what felt pretty random, which was flipping homes and running a real estate business. <sighs> 2008 hit and the market began to crash and any money that we had saved up thinking we could eventually use this for adoption, we were suddenly living off of. So it became apparent that I needed some sort of side hustle in order to raise money to pursue this dream of adopting from Rwanda, which is quite expensive. Mm-hmm. between 30 to $40,000. Yeah. And I had some friends at the time living in Uganda and they had already kind of put a little idea, kind of a seed of an idea in my mind where they were living in Uganda. I had known them previously through Food for the Hungry and they had been on a similar journey of, we really feel like entrepreneurship is the way to empower others. So they were in Uganda in order to create entrepreneurial opportunities for Ugandans. And one of the businesses of the many that they had tried to sort of seed was an artisan business. And they had beautiful things and had this young couple that they had make a whole bunch of great African crafts and had sent it over to America. And I think a friend had done a couple little like pop-up shops at a church. And then the rest of it went to storage and had been Mm. sitting there for years. And they said, we just still have all this stuff sitting in storage. Like, what if you sold it and you could use that money to fund your adoption Or you could also use that money to place a reorder with this couple. And, you know, at the time I was just like, I need money. You got stuff you're giving me to sell. I'll open my house. I'll sell it. I pulled out everything but the kitchen sink to sell that night. I invited about all my friends over and asked them to bring friends. Had like 80 people show up. But people really resonated with these African accessories and people really resonated with this idea that they were gathering in a woman's home and hearing the story behind the product and also doing, helping me with my fund, my adoption. And I think it was really quickly after that night that I realized this could be something there's a hole in the market. There's not a lot of direct sales. There's not any direct sales companies that are like actually have a social impact component. There are not a lot of fashion companies that are ethical and that are um, really, you know, being transparent about where their products are produced. And then in the fair trade space, there was a lot of charity 
buys is what I call them, where, you know, there was pop-up shops at churches and you bought them to be nice, but you never wore them. They went in your closet. Yeah. And so quickly after that night realized, you know, this could be a viable way for me to bring income in for this adoption. And also it could be a business. So I think within a month came up with a name, went and set it all up, you know, set up a $35 website and started asking friends to open their homes and just kind of went for it. Yeah. Can you help me understand a bit of the the secret sauce behind Noonday? Because it's interesting to me that you say there weren't, there wasn't a lot of these because there are more of these now. There are like this idea that you can buy goods from different places around the world, not just Africa, but all over the globe. And you can, and they're really well curated, but Noonday seems to still fly uh, like above all of them in terms of the massive success. Um, what makes Noonday so successful? Yeah. You know, I think that because we were on the front end of it, we were able to grow really quickly. And part of growth is being able to scale a team. So we have an incredible team at our home office here in Austin. Mm. Um, Like I said, 50 people. And so we have eight people that uh, their whole job is devoted to product and devoted to um, ensuring fair trade principles are being followed. And there, I mean, we have people out Every month, you know, people are in India or Africa or Nepal or, you know, Guatemala and are working alongside artisans and our design team is constantly um, researching what are the next trends. We have a trend consultant out of New York who really helps us push the envelope. And I think that, you know, our product really does sing. And then our business model um of really empowering women here in America to be social entrepreneurs. I think so many social brands started off thinking, okay, well, I'm going to sell through stores. And, you know, there's a lot of clout when you're like, oh yeah, I'm an anthropology and I'm in Nordstrom. And, but those products ultimately are sitting on a shelf and they don't have a person there to say, here's the story. And from the beginning, I knew that there was so much power in having an activist, an advocate, a storyteller, a stylist right there in order to capture the heart of that customer. And that was fueled completely by the ambassador opportunity, which um, I launched in 2011, just a few months after launching Noonday Collection. And a lot of the women at, at the beginning um, were adoption advocates and were just really into this idea of creating financial opportunity for the poor. And I would say that is absolutely what's led to our success. We, you know, we continue to have just a, a flourishing group of women to this day. We've had over 4,000 women become ambassadors over the years. And right now we have about 1,800 active women out there um, in their communities representing and selling. And um, these women are the fuel. And then our artisan partners, you know, I said that that young couple that my friends living in Uganda said, oh my gosh, we we would love to help create a business for them. And it was just the two of them at the time, uh, Jalia and Daniel, and now they have a hundred employees and we've been able to really walk alongside our artists and groups to help them scale and become viable businesses um, where they're selling to others and they're going to trade shows. And um, so it's, it's really been a beautiful, beautiful story and I'm extremely grateful. Tell me, uh, because as a, as a, as a, um, you, 
there's a ton of money that is given away. There is a ton of money that is invested into the communities that are making, um, making what is being sold. Yet I'm like, I'm aware you could be making more money with Noonday. And I know that that is indelicate to ask, but in you, how do you make the decision? Uh, that, that was really indelicate to ask, but just how do you make the decision between this social entrepreneurship and just creating more profit and more revenue. Like how does that how does that tension manage itself in your mind? You know, I really do believe, I mean, we are a B Corp, we have a stakeholder model. And it's funny because stakeholder model is the only way I would have ever seen business. But you know, out there in that crazy wild world, you it's like a shareholder model where you're constantly having to report to your shareholders, your bottom line. But we really see our model is, you know artisans. We have our artisan entrepreneurs. We have our ambassador entrepreneurs. We have our home office team. We have our financial, you know, our bank that um, helps us with our, our loans. And we are all equal and we're all benefiting from one another and we're all flourishing together. And I think it just goes back to that original worldview, having gone through that training with Food for the Hungry and um, this discipleship of Steve Corbett and just that model of um, empowering others has always been a passion of mine. And you know, scale to me has always been very important. I never wanted, I started as a side hustle, but I never, I always knew that this was world changing. And I thought about the communities that I had, had worked in previously and just the impact that work can make and quickly wanted that to be, um, a scalable business. And I just, I do believe that, you know, when you are service oriented in your outlook and, you know, you are wanting to serve and add value to your customers, to your ambassadors and to create value for your artisans that, you know, profit will come from that. What is it like for you? And and this is a, a broad question, so feel free to bring it to someone or something specific, but what is it like for you to see an ambassador, their, their life has changed because now they are running their own business. Um, or, or someone who is making the noonday collection. Uh, what is it like for you to see those lives changed? You know, that has been one of the most gratifying parts of the journey. And of course, this all started from impact. I mean, you've heard my entire life story at this point. (laughs) That's right. Um, but from the beginning, not being this solopreneur and getting to like bring all of these women alongside of me, you know, and it's like when you st- swim upstream together, you actually change the current. And I feel like we are changing that current together. And it is the most powerful community of women where we want to show up for one another. And we're not going to let BS be present in the room. We're going to call that out. We're going to call each other to own our voices and use our voices. And I mean, it's so gratifying every year. I'm actually about, I'm leaving for Guatemala in a few days. I just got back from Vietnam three weeks ago. I was in Haiti two months ago. And so already have taken over 70 women around the world just this year. Um, These are taken ambassadors who have worked really hard to earn a trip to go 
visit these artisans. And that is absolutely the most gratifying part of my job is when you have a woman who has a child with special needs and she gets to share with this artisan, like, thank you because of your work, your handiwork. I've been able to provide um, extra therapy for my child who really needs it. And then to have that artisan say, well, thank you, because now my child gets to go to the school that I've always wanted him to go to. I mean, that is just such a picture of what it looks like um, when women empower women. And, you know, when, when one woman rises, I think we all truly do rise together. Mm. I have a question that is very, uh, I feel like the answer is obvious, but I, I also just want to hear um, what you, what your answer is. This is a company that is run by you, the, it is run is all about empowering women, both on the ambassador side and on the production side. Uh, why? <laughs> I guess like, I mean, of course, why, but like, tell me what, why it is so important that women are so just the central part of this story. You know, it's interesting that you ask that because I'm actually in executive coaching right now. And my executive coach, she said to me last week, she said, Jessica, when you talk about your dad, you kind of have this smile on his face. He's like this entrepreneurial guy. He, you know, it's very similar to you. And yet when you talk about your mom, you have this compassion, almost like, Mm -hmm. um, like you have this understanding that she gave up a lot to be there for you and be sort of the stay at home mom. And like, what are some other paths that she could have taken? And I thought that was very astute and it really did get me thinking like perhaps this um, journey that I used to, I used to judge my mom a little bit, I think, because I thought, gosh, be, be louder and use your voice and be decisive. Um, of course now I've learned the Enneagram and she's a nine and I'm like, (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) It's not because you're a Southern debutante. It's because you are a peacemaker and you don't want to rock the boat. Actually that helped me have an incredible amount of compassion for my mother. Um, but I think that maybe there is some of that just realizing that, you know, I was kind of a rock the boat gal and, I want other women to find their voice like I've been able to do. And then, of course, in my work um, among the poor, unfortunately, you know, um, so many men are at the root causes of the family deterioration. I mean, you take a country like Uganda and polygamy is at about 90%. And, you know, the women, when the women work, they use the money to put their kids in school and to help their families, whereas the men drink it. And, you know, so of course it's, it's a little bit more obvious why I want to empower women. And we actually work with a lot of men. So we don't, we're not just working with women in these other countries, because I believe that we really are empowering families. So we were very proud of being able to raise up men leaders where men have oftentimes been contributors to the deterioration of their family. Um, But yeah, here in America, I do wonder if it comes from almost my own experience of of kind of having this compassion on my mom and wanting to create um, opportunities for women to use their voices. In our uh, in our last few moments, I, I want to just look towards the future a bit. And um, you've got a lot going on. So let's just look towards the very immediate future, like the end of the summer. In August, your first book releases. And for those that don't know the title of it yet, it is called Imperfect Courage, Live a Life of Purpose by Leaving Comfort and Going Scared, which makes sense. Hearing your story, I'm like, yes, this is the book you would write. Um, but why why write this book? Why now? What What percolated in you that made you have to put pen to paper? 
Yeah. You know, I have been so grateful for authors, Um, especially in those early years. I felt very, very alone. And there weren't, I didn't have any other women walking alongside me that were also building social impact startups. A lot of my friends were raising babies and um, stay at home moms. And, you know, I looked to Sheryl Sandberg and I looked to Brene Brown and I, um, Andy Crouch, pretty much, you know, I know him personally now, but, you know, at the time his books really mentored me and, and, you know, Gary Haugen, of course, yeah. like um, some of his original books um, are, are those that really did help pay, pay the path for me. And I thought, gosh, if, I, if any of my experience could somehow serve another person, then I want to be able to do that. And then I think there's also something really special about a book that um, helps validate an idea. It's, it's really amazing that we have a story to write about now. You know, we now work uh, with 30 different artisan businesses that impact 4,000 artisans and 20,000 family members. And it's a story that deserves to be told. I mean, we, we are, we've already changed legacies, you know, we've already created legacies for artisans that grew up as orphans and now have children that are attending school and are changing their entire narratives of, of futures to come. And I, I want more people to know that I want people to be cruising down the airport, you know, a bookstore and they see my book and grab it and suddenly learn that they can be a part of this story. Well, I can't wait to read it. It can be pre-ordered now. Uh, and if you're listening to this after August, you can just go ahead and order it. Um, I, last question, how would you define activist? You know, I would think that it is someone who has owned the fact that we are all created in the image of God and we all have power and we're supposed to use that power in order to create more power for others and to create opportunity for other people. Well, that was Jessica Honiger. I am so grateful for her. She spent so much time with us. And there was just a lot of goodness in that interview. But one of the things, as I've been considering this interview that I keep thinking about, was just the fact that she did not know about Noonday until pretty deep into her story. It wasn't like she was taking steps purposefully from when she was a kid until an adult to make Noonday. It just happened as a result, really, of her obedience, of her taking her next right steps and being brave. We all aren't going to have a noonday in our future, but God is calling each of us to do something to serve the world around us. And I hope that all of us, me included, are brave enough to just do the next thing. If you would like to learn more about Jessica, and I hope you will, she has a great podcast, by the way. It's called the Going Scared Podcast with Jessica Honiger. You can find it wherever you just found the new activist. Uh, You can go to her website, jessicahoniger.com. I will put the spelling of that and a link to that in the show notes and follow her on all social and pre-order or order her book, depending on when you're listening to this. I am looking forward to reading it along with you. The New Activist is on social media. Yes, that was an old guy way of saying it. (laughs) But we are on Facebook and Twitter, both of them, New Activist is. And our website is newactivist.is. A reminder to go to and sign up for Liberate. I hope we have some New Activist listeners there. At the live shows that we're going to be doing, you can go to liberategathering.org. Look forward to seeing you there. 
A special thanks, as always, to the Brilliance who scored the new activist. You can find out more about them and listen to their music at thebrilliancemusic.com. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Jessica Honiger, my colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as the Relevant Podcast Network, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more Relevant Podcast Network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com.